Please pray with me. Father above, as we listen to your word, I pray that we would see your son. I pray that your son would be magnified in us. Amen. Matthew 16, 13 through 20 is by far the most argued about passage in Matthew in modern scholarship. Some scholars have called it the storm at the center of Matthew. It's the places where all the denominations clash on what to do with it. And I'll tell you up front, I'm probably not going to answer every question, and I probably won't please every single person. But I think there's things that we can see even if we don't answer every single question. There's three things that people tend to argue about in this passage. The first is Peter's confession of Jesus as the Christ. The second one is Jesus' statement back to Peter that you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. And the third one is Jesus' statement to Peter, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Those are the three places that people argue here. The first is actually fairly straightforward for us. Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ. There are critical scholars who argue about what he meant and whether he would have really said this, but for people who take the Bible seriously, this is the easy one. I mean, we miss a lot of significance, but we don't have a hard time believing that Peter would have understood this and seen this. We miss the full significance of what he would have meant by the Christ because we so oftentimes treat Christ like Jesus' last name. Just another word. We forget the weight of expectation that a Jew would have had for that. The expectation that there would come God's anointed who would judge, who would purify, who would rule. There are things that the Jews were so eagerly waiting for the Messiah problems that they couldn't solve on their own. He was God's answer to all of this. The one who would come and put all things right the final solution. We, we understand in a certain limited sense, but we miss the full weight of what it means that Peter looked at this man, Jesus, and he said, you were the anointed of God, the Messiah, the Christ. But we don't have a hard time believing it. It's the other two. Jesus' statement back to Peter after this confession that you were the rock and on this rock that I would build my church and I will give you the keys of the kingdom that we tend to get hung up on. And those are the ones that I want to spend just a few minutes on before going to where I really want to go, in spite of the fact that I won't answer every single question. We start with the keys of the kingdom, this last thing that Jesus says to Peter. Keys are fairly straightforward objects, are they not? We know what they do. They lock and they unlock doors. They let people into places, and they bar them from places. From Moses onward, the leaders of God's people were tasked with bringing people into the assembly of the people of God who should be in there and cutting people off from the assembly of God who should not be there. From Moses onward, the leaders of the people of God, in other words, were tasked with key tasks what we would call being gatekeepers of the assembly. When Jesus says, I will build my church, he's not talking about a building. The word is actually the word for the gathering of people. 
the assembly. And this concept meant a great deal in the Jewish imagination because it's the assembly of the people of God, not the building that they happen to be located in, the assembly of the people of God that matters. God's people, his congregation. And so these people who are given key tasks, gatekeeping tasks, are basically the guardians for the assembly of the people of God. Who gets to be on the inside and who is driven to the outside. And there's stipulations and rules for times when people are actually pushed outside of the congregation. But from Moses onward, this sort of key task, gatekeeping task, was what every leader was expected. I don't think the disciples would have been confused when Jesus said to Peter, I give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. They would have understood exactly what he was talking about. Peter might have been staggered that he said it to him. I have no right to touch those. But they would have understood the concept. Because somebody in the midst of the assembly of the people of God had to proclaim what was right doctrine. Somebody had to discipline based on people obeying or disobeying the word of God, the commands of God. Somebody had to be the one who says, indeed, you may come into the assembly and bring someone into the covenant who wants to become a part of the people of God. And somebody had to cut people off who would refuse to follow God. Some person had to be given that task. In fact, the only book of the Bible where no one takes that task is Judges. And the refrain over and over and over is everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And it's not a positive refrain. Chaos, idolatry, murder, adultery. God raises up gatekeepers, key keepers in the midst of it, judges, but most of them are as wretched as the rest of the people, and they don't last that long. The point is, is that the assembly of the people of God needed key keepers, gatekeepers. And Peter and the other disciples would have understood exactly what Jesus is talking about, even if Peter might have been blown away that that offer was made to him. Contrary to the jokes, you know, someone dies, goes to heaven, and who's waiting at the pearly gates? Peter, with the keys, right? Does he let him in or not? Contrary to the jokes, this is not a heavenly ministry. Look at verse 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is an earthly ministry with heavenly ramifications. What Jesus offers to Peter is the right to be the gatekeeper of the assembly of God. The right to dictate who's in and who's out, to discipline, to teach. Doctrine and discipline, it's the basic essence of key ministry. And it's work that's done on earth. But in order to understand this, we don't just need to look at the image of the key and its history in Judaic thought. We also need to look at the other places in the New Testament that talk about key-type ministry. We need to pay attention to all of the places in the New Testament that refer to this, because otherwise we could end up over-interpreting Matthew 16. In John 20, 23, after the resurrection, Jesus stands in front of all of the disciples, and he says to all of the disciples, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness, it is withheld. Extending forgiveness or withholding forgiveness is key ministry. It's gatekeeper ministry. And Jesus offers that to all of the disciples, not just Peter, at the end of John 20. In Matthew 28, 
at the very end of the book of Matthew, what we call the Great Commission, Jesus says, all authority has been given to me. But then he turns to the whole group of disciples and he says, go therefore and make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I've commanded. This is key ministry, gatekeeper ministry. Baptism is bringing them into the kingdom of God, teaching them all that I've commanded is that doctrinal part of key ministry, establishing identity and calling for the people of God. And he extends this again, not just to Peter, but to all of the disciples in that moment. Even at the Last Supper, Jesus looks at all those who are gathered with him and says to them, do this in remembrance of me. The do this, this command, is the right given, not just the right, the responsibility given to the disciples to reenact this meal in future settings. And in reenacting this meal, there is the implicit right to determine who gets to sit at the table. Keykeeper, gatekeeper ministry. And again, this moment, this do this, the command is spoken not just to Peter, but to all of the disciples gathered at the table together. My point in bringing those other references to key keeper ministry up is that in all of these instances, Jesus is speaking to a larger group than just Peter. And we can have this tendency to look at Matthew 16 and do one of two things. It's either to deny that Peter got this ministry first because that makes us uncomfortable, or it's to deny that that ministry was not then also later extended to the greater group of disciples. Both occur. Peter is the first one proclaimed as key keeper of the kingdom of heaven. But then at the Last Supper and at the Resurrection and at the Great Commission, that same key keeper ministry is extended outwards. This fits what we see in the rest of the New Testament. Peter is the first one to extend key keeper ministry after Pentecost. He opens the door to thousands. He teaches doctrine in that moment, explaining who the Messiah is, explaining the Old Testament in light of Jesus Christ, giving forgiveness, offering forgiveness. When people say, how do we be saved? He tells them the way in. Peter is the first. He's the first to exercise the keys of discipline. When Ananias and Sapphira lie to the church, lie to the spirit, refuse to repent, Peter is the first to exercise the key of discipline. But it's actually not just Peter when you read through Acts exercising these keys. John goes with him down into Samaria to determine that indeed Samaritans can come into the kingdom of God. James is the one who makes the final doctrinal judgment in Acts 15 that Gentiles don't need to be circumcised to come into the people of God. Paul disciplines an unrepentant sinner at Corinth that the church is refusing to confront. You see this key keeper ministry going on in all of the apostles in Acts, first in Peter and then in the others. I don't know about y'all, but I think that this idea of key keeper, gatekeeper ministry tends to make Americans a little squeamish. It's uncomfortable to think that Jesus would have vested authority in these people and given them this profound ability to bring people in, to fence people out, to teach, to discipline. That tends to make us squeamish. What happens if someone misuses that authority? Because we've seen that authority misused in so many circumstances, have we not? Those are legitimate questions. 
They're questions, though, that the Bible is well aware of. I think when James says, let not many of you want to become teachers, for they shall incur stricter judgment, he's referring to exactly that sort of issue. That the people who stand up to exercise key keeper ministry better beware, because stricter judgment falls on them, because the propensity to misuse that authority is so real. It raises questions like, how does this authority get passed down through generations? And this is where denominations really get into fights. How do you pass down key keeper ministry to the next generation? Because when that first line of disciples died, was the church just left without this thing that Jesus believed was essential? People to guard it and protect it? Was it just supposed to descend into the realm of judges where everyone does what is right in his own eyes? No. All of the apostles purposely appointed successors to take their role. And you read 1 Timothy and Titus, and you'll see Paul purposely appointing people to take his authority for future generations. But for Americans, we want, it, we, we, we want the delineation of power and how it gets passed down, nailed down very carefully so that we can judge it. And those are complicated questions. It raises questions that denominations argue about. And these are the ones that I'm not going to actually try to answer fully. Was Peter, because he received this authority first, placed over the other apostles? The secondary question that follows after that was his successor, Linus, the one he appointed to take his place, was he over the other apostles, even if Peter had been over them? And different denominations have answered those questions in different ways. The Eastern Orthodox have consistently said, Peter was the first of equals. He gets to sit at the head of the table, but he has no authority over the rest. Protestants have consistently said none of their successors had any authority. It's only adherence to Scripture that gives you authority. That raises, by the way, lots of logical questions of who gets to judge adherence to Scripture. Anglicans have always tried to split the middle path. And we say, yeah, their successors had the authority, and Peter might have been the first of equals, but you also have to adhere to Scriptures, and none of them gets authority, and Anglicans have offered a muddled answer. If you want to talk about it more, I'd love to talk about it. There is cohesiveness and cohesion in the answer that Anglicans offer to this question. But it's not my point to go into that level of church politics detail right now. Yeah, the Ro Rome has had the easiest time answering this question. They've just said Peter got the authority first. Look, so he has the authority over all the others. It's a simple, clean, and easy answer. My point is not to solve all those things right now. It's just to point out to you, I don't want to get sidetracked, they're important questions, but it's just to point out to you very simply that Jesus doesn't leave the assembly of God's people without leaders. He doesn't leave them vulnerable to attack. He puts people there with heavy responsibility and a heavy burden of judgment on their own shoulders to keep them protected doctrinally, disciplining. He's not giving them a free-for-all. But it's also important to point out that that authority to do those things only comes from one place. It comes from Jesus. People can't take it on their own, and people can't decide when they get it. It comes from Jesus' hand and Jesus' hand alone. We turn now to the next statement, the one that Jesus said prior to that, when he said to you, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus is saying something profound to Peter. 
He's saying that because you understand who I am, because you confessed it freely, because you actually see that I'm the Messiah, you are a rock. And he's actually saying to him, I'm going to build my assembly on you. But again, so that we don't make this statement more or less than it is, we need to see other places in the New Testament that use this same imagery. If you flip forward to Ephesians 2, Paul says you are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and the members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. And suddenly the foundation has more than Peter in it. It has all the apostles and the prophets. And then Paul says, with Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. The analogy has grown so that the foundation includes more than just Peter. If you look at 1 Peter, Peter himself says later that this temple that's being built that is the assembly of the people of God, all of us are living stones in it. You and me are suddenly now included in this. We're all living stones, and Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. It all hinges on him. If you turn to 1 Corinthians 3, Paul says of this foundation and of this building that is being built, no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now suddenly the foundation is Jesus Christ. My point in bringing up these various passages is that this image that the assembly of God is a temple that's being built on a foundation and it's a temple designed for God to live in it that's what we are. And that's built first and foremost on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. But historically, there were people who played such an important role in the beginning of that, the prophets and the apostles, that they get to be called keystones in the foundation, never displacing Jesus as the true cornerstone, the true foundation. But they were historically keystones in the foundation. And of those, Peter gets called the first the rock, the one that actually kind of holds it together. But don't think that that means that he holds it together as if Jesus isn't the real one holding it together, the real foundation. Just a historical reality that he confessed first and was given prominence of place. That fits with Acts. After all, who is the one who is first leading at Pentecost preaching? It's Peter. Who is the one who's the first defender of the faith in persecution drawn up in front of the council? It's Peter. Who's the one who officially brings the Gentiles into the church? It's Peter. He's given this prominence of place of being the first stone laid on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. But he's not alone. He's not the only part of the foundation. It includes the apostles and the prophets. And even when you think about that image then you say, but none of them are actually the foundation. Jesus is the foundation. They are just sort of the first row of stones built on that foundation. Again, that does not solve every question that every denomination raises. But that's as far as I want to go with those thoughts because I want to turn to what we can do with this passage right now. I want to raise two implications of this passage for us. The first is very simply Jesus' statement, I will build my church. I will build my church. I will gather my people. I will gather my assembly. It's easy for us to actually forget this particular statement and this particular promise 
in the midst of the arguments over this passage. The point, very simply, is that Jesus builds the church. We are called to labor with him. We are invited into his work. And it's true that he works through us. But the very clear point that comes out of this is that it is his church and not ours. That he is the true builder and not us. This is the point when I want to remind you is that every Christian is a microcosm of the church. Y'all have heard me say that strange phrase before. Everything that we can say about the church, we can say about the individual Christian. It is important for us to come to terms with the fact that incarnation is not ours. We are not the builders of it. Jesus Christ is the builder of the church. That's important, but my guess is most of y'all probably don't struggle with that. That's my struggle. I'm the one who tends to be possessive here. But most of y'all probably do the exact same thing with your own lives. Jesus Christ is the builder, not you. Jesus Christ is the builder, not you. You are invited into the process. You participate with him. You were called to the work, but he is the builder and not you. That's the first implication. And it's one that I think that is important for us to come to terms with because we spend so much time trying to build our own lives. We spend so much time trying to figure out and orchestrate and delineate and to get things right for ourselves. So much time working. And we need the statement of Jesus, I will build to make us go, oh, is his. As Psalm 127 says, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain. This is the first implication that's, I think, good for us to grapple with in this passage. The second one comes out of the circumstance, the place where Jesus promises to build his church. Jesus blessed Peter and gave him prominence and authority for one reason and one reason alone. It wasn't Peter's wisdom. It wasn't Peter's physical prowess. It wasn't Peter's good looks. It wasn't Peter's eloquence. It wasn't his writing style. It wasn't any of those things. Jesus blessed Peter and gave him prominence for one reason. Peter confessed Christ. The place where Jesus builds his church is the place where people, without hesitation, freely and openly and gladly point back to Jesus. Jesus looks at this man who's pointing at him, saying, you were the answer to everything we've been hoping for. And he says, okay, that's what I'm looking for. And I will pull you in to be a central part of the foundation of this work. It's because Peter is pointing back to him that this is the right place for Jesus to actually say, I will freely use you in this work. Jesus builds his work on those who are quite willing to point back to him and to quit pretending it's about themselves. This is what Peter does at each of these key moments. You look at Pentecost and all he's talking about is Jesus Christ. You look at the moment when he and John are going into the temple. There's a lame man. They raise him up in the name of Jesus and people are praising them. And he says, quit thinking it was my power or my piety. It was the name of Jesus that did this. He gets drawn in front of the council and they're 
very much in his face saying, stop what you're doing. And he says, I will not stop preaching because there is no other name of salvation. The only name given under heaven to men to be saved. He is fixated on proclaiming Jesus Christ. This is the sort of place where Jesus builds his church. But again, I go back to that axiom that every Christian is a microcosm of the church. And you say, what does it mean for Christ to build a life in you? And we realize very quickly that he does not build where the person is not freely and openly confessing him. That this, in the end, is what matters. There are so many other good things to think about and to talk about. But when those become a distraction from confessing Christ, it is noise and activity that signifies nothing. There are so many other things that preoccupy us, our own attempts to build ourselves, our own fixation with the way that we're being treated, all of these other things. But we need to be hit over and over with the reality that Jesus builds his church when people take their eyes off themselves and turn them to him. Jesus builds Christians when they quit pretending that it's about themselves and get fixated on Jesus. More than anything today, the thing that I hope that y'all hear is that what the Lord wants of us is that our eyes would be turned to him, that we would be pointing to him, that we would be freely confessing him. In that posture, we can expect that he will live up to his word. I'll build my church. I'll build my Christian. He will do for us all that we need when our posture is Jesus is all that matters. And so with me, let us join Peter in pointing back to Jesus and declaring him to be the answer, God's solution, the only thing that matters, freely and openly confessing him and not getting all of the other good projects of life in the way of this very first thing. Jesus in the end is all that matters. Not how perfect we are, not how much we accomplish, not how successful or well-liked or well-loved, not whether we get our way, not whether people understand us, not anything else. Jesus is the only answer. Amen.